0: Israel has lost. The arch nemesis, the Philistines, had won the battle. And they had been fighting Israel, it felt like, the entire book from the very beginning. And now you get to the end of 1 Samuel, and they had won. Saul had been killed, fell on his own sword. His sons, Jonathan, have also been killed. And that final scene in 1 Samuel, Samuel 31, the Philistines are parading around these bodies. They are declaring that their gods had won. They are living in the homes of the Israelites, living in their cities. It is about as bad and as bleak of an ending as you can possibly imagine. But at the same time, on the other hand... You start to think that Saul's downfall is David's opportunity. His tragedy is the window that David has been waiting for. If you follow the story in 1 Samuel, I mean, it feels like forever ago that I preached that David had been anointed by God to be the next king. It was over a decade ago, 15, not our decade, in the story, a decade ago, it may have felt like that but hopefully not back in the middle of first Samuel and so we've been kind of anticipating when is David going to take the throne. Saul is not a good king. David's going to be a better king. And so as we kind of wrap up the story in 1 Samuel, we begin the book anticipating David is finally going to take the throne that he's been promised by David. And so or by God. And so I'm picturing this in my mind as I'm getting into 2 Samuel 1. And the the I found myself thinking That the start of 2 Samuel was going to be like a movie that our family has watched, I can't even count how many times. I was picturing the start of the movie Frozen. If you know the story Frozen, it's Coronation Day. It's Coronation Day. We're finally there for the first time in forever. (laughs) I'll stop with that. My daughter was in the first service, and yeah, I I asked her, should I keep going? She said, no, dad, please stop. But that's the picture in my mind, this big celebration. David is finally king. He's going to have his commanders. There's going to be this feast. We've been anticipating this moment, and now finally, King Saul is dead, and now we will celebrate the rise of King David. But this is not how our story continues in chapter one. This is what I was anticipating. There's no dance, there's no feast, there's no coronation, but instead, what we get in chapter one, 27 verses of grief. We walk with David through the tragedy of the news that King Saul and Jonathan and Israel have been defeated. And, And it's not what we're expecting. But it's what God gives us. And so this morning, we want to walk this road through 2 Samuel chapter 1 together. I'll start in verse 1, and then we'll pray. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag, And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people had fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, well, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Geboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. He, and he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented. With this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar, he said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Your mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there, the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain and from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided, they were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Let's pray. Father, we come to the story, First Second, uh, 2 Samuel 1, and we pray, God, that this truth would speak to our hearts and to our minds and to our lives, that we would leave this place this morning changed by the truth of your word. In our grief, give us hope. As we navigate life, give us light. And God, I pray that We would hear from you according to your word today, that nothing would keep us, no stressor, no fatigue, nothing would keep us from hearing from your spirit through your word today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. For an outline of our text as we walk through it, I'll put it on the screen. It's not a very complicated chapter to kind of map out what's happening In death, we cling to hope. That's one, verse one. And then the rest of the chapter, in death, we grieve. David is grieving, verse two, all the way through 27. This morning, we'll start in verse two, and then we'll come back and we'll close with the hope of verse one. And I think it's helpful as we kind of get back into this part of the book in chapter one, I think it's helpful to remember the ride that David's life has been. David's life has been a roller coaster of ups and downs for the last four or five chapters, a complete whirlwind. And I think it's helpful for us as we kind of seek to understand what what is David doing here to remember All that David has gone through these last couple of chapters, back in chapter 28 and 29, you remember David was on the battlefield with the Philistines going to fight Israel. This was a low point. His bad choices led to this awful outcome. How is he going to get out of this mess? But then in chapter 29, God delivers David. You remember the commander said, we're not going to fight with David. Send him home. And so from the low of I'm stuck and I have to go fight Israel to the high of go home to Ziklag, to your home and to your families, the high of that moment, skipping all the way home, clicking his heels. He crests the hill and he can smell the smoke. It's chapter 30. The Amalekites had come, swept in, doing what they do, burning their village, their town, their homes, take captive their wives and their families. So from the high of, I don't have to go fight. To the low of, our family is gone. Everything has been burned. The text said, if you remember, David said, I have no more strength to weep. Then to the end of that chapter, chapter 30, before it even ends, David, through God's supernatural. Guidance is able to discover the Amalekites where they are, who they are, what they're doing, and the text said he recovered everything; he didn't lose anything. We call this the jackpot, and so you kind of start to see this this roller coaster of a life that, that David is on: tops, the highest top, the lowest bottoms, and then we get to back to Ziklag. So he rescues his family; they come back to Ziklag, and once again. Now David is weeping again. The mourning continues. I feel like I just talked about mourning and loss and grief, but this is the story of David's life, a roller coaster. When is it going to end? And and maybe your life feels like that sometimes. Just up and down, over and over I remember a few summers ago, we vacationed to Ocean City, New Jersey, and they had just put this really big roller coaster on the boardwalk, and of course, as we watched it, my middle son Truman had decided this was his dream. He was born for this ride, and and so he had begged and begged all week long, Dad, let me ride Gale Force. And, and of course, our patio, where the the little place that we were staying, you could see gale force from where our little patio was. You could hear gale force all night long. But Truman, this just whetted his appetite. Dad, let me ride this ride. And we talked to the the operator there of the amusement park. He said it's 125 feet tall. It's a 90-degree drop. I'm not sure how that's possible. It's a 64-mile-per-hour launch speed. They told us, and this just made Truman all the more want to ride this. And so finally we said, well, let's make your dream a reality. I will take you on this ride, son. And I, I mean, I don't have a, a major problem with roller coasters. And so I thought, how bad could it be? And so as we were preparing, yeah, as we were preparing to, do the, to get the ride, we bought our tickets and we started to get a little concerned. Nobody was in line for this ride there's always lines in Ocean City. Why isn't anyone else here? Truman, when they measured him, he is on his tippy toes. And so I think Truman started to get a little nervous about this ride. I wasn't feeling great. And so we we got on the ride, and I don't know how else to describe it. It was miserable. (laughs) Miserable. I don't know if it's that I'm getting older and, and I can't do these rides anymore, if it was the Mack and Mankos, if it was, just, it was just too much. And Truman, I looked over to Truman in the middle of the ride, he was not having it. He was not enjoying it. And we kind of got to the end of the ride, and we're kind of getting back to the beginning, and now we're smiling because the gale force nightmare is over. We're done with this thing, and the operator of the ride must have misinterpreted our smiles. Yeah, let's let this dad and son have one more. Go- I think it's illegal to do that. So he just did, he pushed the button and off we went for a second <laughs> run. And there was nothing we could do. And it's, it's funny to remember, and we were talking about it, Truman, we, we laugh about it. But listen, when this is how your life feels, it's not funny Just these ups and downs. God, when is it going to end, God? When is it going to end? And this this must have been where David was. I mean, we meet David again, and he is mourning another loss. But this is the story. This is how it goes for David. You know, he goes back to Ziklag, home or whatever's left at home. And you just have to think he was anticipating, knowing what happened to Israel in the battle against the Philistines. right? That makes a lot of sense, right? He had been escorted out of this battle. It was his people that that were about to fight. And you just have to think these two days in Ziklag before this young man comes. David is just wondering, what has happened in this battle? Well, then a man shows up and tells him the fate. Verse 2. And on the third day, behold... A man, sorry. A man, we'll go ahead and take care of that. There we go. So, this, on the third day, a man shows up. Verse 2 Behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, and he fell on the ground and paid homage. So, here comes this young man. Now he's been mourning. This is what the cult. This is the cultural expression. His clothes are torn. His hair is dirty. I mean, he is grieving, and it's not just that he's grieving. But what does he do to, to David? The text says he falls in front of him. He pays him homage. Now that's, I think, a little signal. It's a hint of what was going through this young man's mind. He is anticipating David being the next king. He falls down before him. He knows who David is. I am bowing down before the next king. And so David, I mean, he's been waiting to know. And David goes full into investigative mode. And you see through the story, he asks these five questions because he wants to know the truth of what's happened to Saul, to Jonathan, and to Israel. Verse 3, where do you come from? who are you? Where have you been? I mean, he's asking them, he's asking this man, like, tell me what has happened? Where have you come from? And the man replies, I'm from Israel. I was on team Saul. I was fighting for the good guys, and I was able to escape battle. And David continues verse four, the second question, how did it go? Tell me what happened. You were there I have been waiting now tell me. and this is like the phone call you never want to get. I mean, a complete disastrous news that this young man is bringing. Saul and his Jonathan and his son Jonathan are dead. And so now David is in disbelief. He is in shock. And he asks him this third question in verse five, "How do you know? Tell me how you know. Give me the story. And so the man retells the story. And it's at this point in the text where that radar starts to kind of go off as we're reading it. Like, this doesn't add up. Maybe you were thinking that as I was reading, like, is that how it really happened? No, it's not how it happened. It's not how we were told it happened in chapter 31. And chapter 31 is the accurate retelling of the story. What we have here is, what we see is, the young man is lying. The young man is not telling the truth. I mean, he knows enough about what happened. He was probably on Mount Gilboa. He probably heard Saul ask his armor bearer, if he would kill him, but now as he's retelling the story of this battle, this young man inserts himself into the story. Now, why would he do that? He's hopeful. He's enthusiastic. I have mercifully killed the king, and now you're the next king, David, and he is anticipating. He is anticipating. He is going to be rewarded. He's going to be blessed, but listen We see in the text, he couldn't have been more wrong. This is not what David's gonna do. David continues as he starts to kind of sense that this doesn't add up. Something about this story isn't, it's not connecting. Verse 13, the fourth question Where do you come from? He's already asked this question. That was the first question, but this time it's not so much a location of where you came from. Now he is is interrogating the young man. Who are you? And what's your heritage? Tell me more about your character. And what does he say? I'm a sojourner. I'm an Amalekite. And I was telling, right? The Amalekites were the ones who'd been fighting Israel, fighting David, took his family. And then the last question, how is it you were not afraid, the clincher, the key question. How could you have done that? I mean, don't you recognize who you were killing? Over and over we've seen in the story, David has refused to touch Saul. Why? Well, we've said it over and over again because Saul was the Lord's anointed. Why wouldn't the armor bearer have done that? You are the Lord's anointed. In the Hebrew, the word anointed is the word messiach. Does it sound like an English word? The Messiah. This was the Messiah. God has empowered you to do his work for Israel. In the English, that word messiach, when we translate that into the New Testament, the word is Christos, Christ. You are specifically, specially empowered by God to do the work of God. And for that reason, yes, Saul had flaws and he messed up. But you cannot blame David and you cannot blame the armor bearer. I will not touch the man that that God has set up as the Messiah, as the king, as the anointed. But this didn't bother the Amalekite man. This was an opportunity. This was his reward. But he failed to take into account the character of the king. And so once the news, once David realizes what's going on here, you see him go from disbelief to kind of discovering what had happened to now his righteous wrath and his righteous anger. And so David says, your blood is on your own head. Your choice to lie and to seek reward at the death of the Lord's anointed is your own death sentence. And so, he's killed. And there's not a lot of time spent there in the middle of the chapter on his righteous anger, because then the story moves to now, which is the, the majority of the chapter, which is the lament and the grief of David over the Lord's anointed. Now, I think as we study the lament and the lament that he writes out, I think there's some really, I think there are some helpful observations we can make about David's lament for our own life. Now, I don't think it's the, the primary force of the passage is to teach us how to grieve, but I do think we can make some observations about how David grieves. And I think it could be helpful, though. It's not, we'll close with what I think is the, the main thrust of the passage. But to start, David is in lament. He is grieving. And he doesn't seem to be in a rush. David doesn't seem to be in a rush. He's not thinking about a coronation. He's not thinking about moving on to what's next. He sits and he laments with his people. Verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening. I mean, he's just mourning. He's just, he just says, slow down in the grief of this moment. And he's not downplaying his lament. I think sometimes we do this. We minimize the grief we feel because we feel like it's probably not the right thing to feel. But here David David is not minimizing it, spiritualizing it, downplaying it or I mean David is experiencing deep grief. I remember when we lost our son Graham. I've talked about him the last couple of weeks. People Trying to comfort us. And you be you have to be really gracious when people try to comfort you because you know how it is. You, you don't know what to say, but sometimes people would say things and it would just cause us to, to wonder. Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good. Let's praise God. And you're like, stop talking. I don't want Romans 8:28. I don't want a spiritual message right now. I want to grieve. And I want to sit in my grief, and I want to mourn, and I want to lament for this moment. And this appears to be what David's doing. He's not rushing to what's next. What is he doing? He's writing out his lamentation. I mean, we see for the last half, this beautiful, raw moment of David putting words to his lament. I mean, this is a a helpful thing to do, I've done it, helping you to process what you're feeling by writing it to words. I mean, this is what the counseling world does. It's helpful. It's helpful as you experience an unspeakable grief to try to capture it with words. And this is what David's doing. He says, teach it to people. Invite others to see and to read and to learn, to feel what I'm feeling through this lament that I'm writing. And so you get to the lament. Lament verses 19 through 27, and it's, it's almost like we've, we've looked into David's journal. And he's all over the place. It almost feels wrong to analyze it, to, like, to try to outline it, because he's just all over the place. One moment, he's angry at the Philistines. He's spiting the mountain that, he, that Saul and Jonathan were killed upon. The other moment, he's sullen and somber and emotional. And, and we're just reminded, this is how grief works. There's no five to seven neat little stages of grief that when you get to acceptance, you've, you've grieved all you're going to grieve. But David is showing us that the, the process of grief, it is all over the place. One moment, you can be content and at peace, and in the very next second, you can be overcome with sadness. I've talked with many widows that this is their experiencing. We've had a couple here who one who lost her husband a year ago, another who lost her husband 2 years ago and this is how they describe their this last week. All over the place. Happy, content that they're in a better place, but in the same breath, I am overwhelmed with sadness that my husband's not here. This is grief. We don't we don't arrive. There's no in point to the destination or to the map. It just looks different at different times. A song can come on. You can smell something. You can hear something. And all of a sudden, you're thrust back into it. This is the nature of grief. And so I think it's helpful at least to observe how David laments. But I don't think it's the main question that is the force of this text. I think the, the most obvious question to ask here is this. Why is David so sad? I mean, have you been thinking that as we've been reading this? Like, David, come on. David, who who are you crying about? Don't, Don't you see? Saul has been your enemy more than the Philistines have been. Get over this, David. Take the throne. Like, why aren't you celebrating? This is the man who has tried to kill you. Over the last 10 years. And we don't have any hint of David. Not once saying he is relieved. He's going to sleep well tonight. Saul had it coming. What goes around, comes around. None of that. So the question is, why do we get a chapter of David grieving? Especially grieving over Saul and Jonathan. Well, I think if we look into the lament... 19 through 27, we could see the cause for his grief. Look at some of the adjectives used to describe Saul and Jonathan and Israel there in the the passage. Verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. Saul is glorious. Jonathan is glorious. You are at the top of the top. I mean, this is the word that describes beauty and splendor and majesty. You represent as the king the majesty of God. You are at the pinnacle, and yet the glory has been slain. You have been killed. And then you get to verse 19. You have the refrain of his lament. He says this several times. It kind of stands out in the lament. How the mighty have fallen... How the mighty have fallen. The word mighty. I mean, Saul had been mighty in battle. You go back to chapter 14, 47 through 48. It won't be on the screen, but it just talks about how enemies coming from all sides of of Saul. And Saul just had victory after victory after victory. The Moab and the Ammonites and Edom and the Malachites and the Philistines and Saul was mighty in battle, winning time and time again, but he is no longer. He's no longer. The mighty has fallen. You get the word unified in verse 23. They were undivided. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. Again, you're kind of like, really, David? Like, that, that's how you will describe the, the father son relationship of Saul, Jonathan. But David's seeing the best of this man. That's the only way to describe this. I mean, they were not unified on what to do with David. Yet, Jonathan never betrayed his father, he stood by him, he died by his side. And so, David chooses to see Saul and Jonathan as unified. Swift like eagles, strong like lions. 2 Samuel 1.23. These men, they were on the top. They were mighty, and they were wise, and they were fast, and they were powerful. These were the leaders. They were prosperous. Verse 24, your daughters of Israel weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Saul, you were successful, and you were generous, and you gifted Israel with luxury. And then he goes on to describe Jonathan, this extraordinary love. And this isn't even to mention the word that we've, we've been using all, all morning long. Saul was anointed. You were anointed by God to, to to save and to lead and to rescue. And this is the tragedy, though. This is the tragedy of the chapter, that even though Saul was mighty and glorious, unified and swift and strong and powerful and prosperous, even though Saul was anointed, Saul fails. He was a failure. He could not avoid death. I mean, he had so much potential, yet at the end of the day, he failed. And this, this is sad. I mean, for David, who loves Israel and loves God and loves what God is doing, this was heartbreaking for David. You know, as, we, we pre- as Jonathan preached last week, the word that was at the bottom of the, of the page in my Bible that I kept looking at, In red ink, all capital letters, was the word failure. Saul was a failure. And that's sad. You know, the people wanted Saul to lead them into their battles. I mean, tall and handsome and valiant. But in the end, he lost. He was not the king that they had hoped for, to save them, to redeem them, to lead them, to rescue them. No, Saul had failed. And so this is where it ends, but this is not where the story ends. If you, you know, turn the page from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel and you get to verse 1, go back to verse 1 for just a moment. Look at how the chapter of the book begins. After the death of Saul. After the death of of Saul. This could be the title of the book, of the book of 2 Samuel. The death of Saul was not the end. The story is not over. Death is not the final word. There is an after. And the whole book is telling the story of, yes, it was bleak and dark and discouraging, but there is an after. There is a moment that comes next. This is not the end. And for a moment, you see this ray of light peeking through the storm clouds because you start to get this hope. The story's not over. And then you read the next phrase. When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, there is another man, a king who is coming who's up next, who'd been chosen by God, not chosen by Israel to go win all the battles, but this time David was chosen by God, a man after God's own heart. Yes, not perfect, but here's what we see. The moment that Saul was being defeated, at the same time another victory was being won. Who was was David defeating? He was defeating the Amalekites. And I think the author puts this here really intentionally. The same moment that the throne and the crown is taken from Saul is the same moment that David's winning. And, and if you remember, why was the throne being taken from Saul? Way back, when he didn't listen to God to strike down the who? The Amalekites. Samuel told him, the crown is, is being removed from your family. From you, you will no longer be the king because you've disobeyed. And for the reason that Saul lost the throne, David was taking it through his victory over the Amalekites. And so this is what we see. In David, there is victory to come. In David, we have a better king. And so for us, this is a, it's a good reminder for us. We will have days of deep sadness. You you may be living in days of deep sadness right now, and it's okay. It's okay. Don't, Don't rush it. It's okay to feel that. Death is sad. Loss is hard. Unmet expectations can be devastating. But listen, we don't despair, do we? We know there is hope. There is a king, a better king, and a better day before us, that death, death is not the end. And this is what verse, first, 2 Samuel 1 teaches us, that the story is not over. But for us today, why we don't despair and why we're not overcome with tragedy is because we know who the better king is, and it's not, it's not David. His name is Jesus. And so this is the gospel this is the wonderful news of the gospel that Jesus came and he came to do something about death. And, and what's so magnificent about Jesus is he came and he sympathized with people. If you remember the story of Lazarus, what does he do? He weeps. Mary and Martha, he weeps with them. He weeps with us. He is sympathetic to us. That loss and death, it is, it is devastating. But here's what's so great about the gospel He doesn't just sympathize with us. Jesus comes to do something about it. He comes to change the trajectory. He comes and he dies so that death would prove to be the end. His death would be the end of all deaths. And so for us today, if we grieve, it's okay to grieve. And it's okay to sit in grief. But at the same time, we have hope. The king has come, and he is coming again. And we know that in him we have life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. This story with Saul and David and how much we can learn, each of us can learn. And so God, I pray for the one here who's grieving, who's disappointed, who's discouraged, who feels like David fell in chapter one. God, I pray that they would see the victory and the hope of verse 1. That you sent Jesus at the same time of us struggling in our own sin. That you sent Jesus to rescue us. And that's the gospel. His death is the end of death. Our death. And that we can have hope and life in him. And so God I pray that you would give us hope. You'd give us hope. We're thankful For this morning, we're thankful for this time as we sing this song about life and death and about hope in Jesus. God, I pray that it would touch our hearts that we'd leave this morning clinging to the hope that we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.